Wow. Isn't that a great promise that God has given us in Christ? That regardless of what is happening around us, we know who lives in us. And because of that, it is indeed well with our soul. Thank you, Daniel and Landon. What a blessing. This morning, I'm kind of gimpy, and I need to tell you from the start, I hurt my back this week. Uh, and, and I did it in the strangest of ways, standing up from working at my computer and just turning. And from that, I had about two and a half days almost flat on my back. Um, and then a little bit better yesterday, a little bit better today. And I had to take some muscle relaxers to sleep last night. And they've still got me a little dull. So if you've thought me dull, I'll be duller. Um, and so if, if I seem a little bit... Um, kind of uh, out of it today. I'm kind of working those things off, even though I took them uh, well before bedtime. We're at a place in the Scriptures that is of such incredible importance that even in our Gospel Project Sunday School lessons, which are going to cover the entire Bible in three years, um, this certain section is given two separate weeks. And that's the section... On Abraham, we're very, very, very early in the Bible yet. We're all the way back here in Genesis, starting at chapter 12. So we're 12 chapters into the Bible and we're going to hit a topic that is going to look back to Genesis one and forward to the last chapters of the book of the Revelation. And so it's a very significant text and there are going to be some themes. And so my goal today in sharing with you is to look at six themes that are present in the passages about Abraham and what those themes mean in their context and then a little bit of what do they mean looking forward into the New Testament and into the book of the Revelation. And so... Basically, what I'm going to do is give the themes today and the next Sunday talk a little bit more about their specific application to us and how these themes are important in us understanding our own salvation. So join me in Genesis 12. Let's grab our outlines together. We're going to open up and the very first thing we're going to say, number one, is that God made a promise to Abraham. This promise is very important. This promise will be spoken of in all of the events of Israel leading up to Christ. It will be spoken of in Christ. And it will be spoken of a fulfillment that comes because of Christ and through Christ. And so this promise is a central theme in the book of Hebrews is a central theme in the book of Galatians, and its fulfillment is a central theme in the book of the Revelation. So God made a promise to Abraham. Now that promise had some components to it, and we're going to look at those components, those themes, in the next five points after this. But we're starting off with the promise to Abraham. It starts in chapter 12. And I want you to note a few things in the first few verses. I want you to look for the word I. Okay? You know the letter, the one single word, I. I want you to look for that as I read. And then I want you to tell me who is I in the text. 
Verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So who's I there? God is. So God is making a promise. He's saying, I am going to do these things. These things are very important because in this statement are the images and the shadows and the hints of our salvation. And this will be reflected upon Many times throughout the rest of the Bible, we'll hear God speaking, saying the promises made to the fathers, the promises of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So we'll hear God reflecting on this. And so here is God making a promise. Now, when we think about promise keeping, we think about Things like oaths or covenants or, or, or swearing something. I'm not talking about swear words, but swearing uh, the truth of something. And we're going to see that actually taking place on God's part as his promise is fleshed out in the next few chapters. As God reveals himself to Abraham, he is going to first Talk to him. Number two, God's promise specified a place. Now, this is of tremendous importance. Look in the end of verse 12. Excuse me, verse 2 of chapter 12. There we go. Muscle relaxers. Right there in my brain. Okay. To the land which I will show you. Now, scroll on down to verse 7 of chapter 12. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Jump over to chapter 15 for a moment. And look in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Now, when I started, I said some of what takes place in chapter 12 and following in the Abraham story reflects back to the beginning of the Bible and also looks forward to the end of the Bible. One of the themes that draws together Abraham's story with the beginning of the Bible And Abraham's story with the end of the Bible is this thing called the land. This particular land in the story of Israel is the land of Adam and Eve. It is the garden land. It is the land they were given and through sin lost. It is a land that is one day to be restored in the book of the Revelation at the end of time, where the center of all activity on the new earth will be Jerusalem, the heart of the land. 
the capital of the land. And so what is happening is, is that what was lost in Genesis, this garden, the place of the presence of God, this wonderful land that they were driven out from, is now, through the promise to Abraham, going to be restored. Abraham will occupy it for a little while, then there will be a time it will be lost And the children of Israel will be in bondage to Egypt. And then they'll return to the land. And then they'll lose it again and go into captivity to the the Babylonians. And then they'll get it back again. And then they'll lose it again. And then ultimately, under the Messiah, in the new heaven and the new earth, this one place that is the centerpiece of God's presence on the earth, this land will be restored. And so when you see the word land in all of the interactions between Abraham and God and Abraham and his children, that land ties Genesis 1 and 2 to Revelation 20 and 21 right together with Abraham because what God is doing is He is going to restore what sin broke. And he is going to re-establish the land as that place of great blessing and bliss, that paradise of glory, God himself being present there, the land itself having in its midst once again the tree of life. And so you're going to see all the story of the Bible tied together in the story of the land given as a gift, lost through sin, restored through Christ. And so the story of the land is the story of God working to bring a people to Himself who will serve and worship Him in this beautiful land as a gift. And the nations, it says, will bring their glory to this land. We'll see that in a few minutes. So God's promise specified a place. Now, if you want to have some fun... Get your highlighter, start in Genesis 12, and read all the way through the end of Abraham's life and see how many times the land is mentioned. I think you'll be surprised at the emphasis over and over and over about this place called the land. Number three, God's promise included a people. And this is important too. There's got to be somebody to live on this land. And so he promises, back to Genesis 12, he says in verse 2, I will make you a great nation. There's a problem here. We've just learned in Chapter 11, verse 30. Drop back there for a second. Chapter 11, verse 30. We've just learned something. Sarai is barren. Her name will later be changed to Sarah. It's Sarai now. And she has no children. She cannot have children. She's barren. And so now there's this promise of this land... And now there's this promise of some descendants that are going to inhabit the land. 
And it's kind of confusing because Abraham doesn't possess the land and his wife cannot bear children. And so there's this promise. Well, the promise is made in verse 7 of chapter 12. To your descendants or your seed, I will give this land. There's a problem. Abram's 75 years old. His wife also is advanced in years and beyond what would be considered the normal time of childbearing. Here's this promise. So, you'll come over to chapter 15 for a moment. This discussion about the people ensues. Chapter 15, verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. This was like his chief um, servant, and he would be the heir. In verse 3, and Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man shall not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now, look towards the heavens. And count the stars. You ever been out on one of those starry nights where there were no city lights to dim? And it's just astonishing. And so he sends Abram out of his tent and he looks up and he's like, whoa. And he says, look, count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants or your seed be. So there's this promise. The promise is about a place and it's about a people. Both of them have to be miraculous. Abraham doesn't possess the land and he has no offspring from his own body. I want to take you somewhere for a moment to see how Genesis ties to Revelation. So let's go over to the book of the Revelation for a moment and watch the connection. Revelation chapter 7. John is given a vision of heaven. Go to verse 9. Revelation 7, 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. 
What did he say to him when he looked up at the stars? He said, count them if you can. And of course, we all know that he couldn't. And now, suddenly, we're standing in Revelation looking out at a mass of people. And John says, it's too many to count. Notice what they are. From every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Okay, back to Genesis for a moment. Fifteen five again. Now he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens. Count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now to chapter 17 for a moment. Let's go through the first five verses quickly. Now, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Okay, so how much time has passed? Let's do our math. How much time has passed? Okay, 24 years. Is 24 years a long time? I think it's a pretty good while. I think it's a pretty good, especially if you're waiting on something. (laughs) I mean, if the UPS guy's running late, do you think you're going to stand there 24 years? No, it's, it's the wait. You're not going to be in McDonald's line for 24 years. But waiting on something causes you to really kind of struggle with it. And so here's God speaking to him. Verse 1, now Abram was 99 years old and the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless and I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And we saw people in the book of Revelation from every tongue and tribe and nation. So that Abraham's offspring, Isaac, leading to his offspring, Jesus, is going to father spiritually nations. And those nations shall bring their glory to God in the book of the Revelation. We'll visit that maybe in a few minutes or or next week if, if time doesn't allow it today. And so here there is a promise of a people. It's more than just the Jewish people. They will be the line, the lineage, the protected group through which the Messiah's line travels. Because salvation is of and through the Jews. And so this promise 
Now, one more passage I want you to come with me to is the book of Galatians. New Testament, right after 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and come with me to chapter 3. Paul is going to make a revelation here about these nations, about these people, that is going to cause Paul a lot of trouble because he will be persecuted for preaching this. But if you'll follow, I guess we'll pick up in verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are, what does it say? Abraham's descendants or offspring or seed. Heirs according to God's promise. So when God talked about promising to Abraham, he promised a place. This land that would be his inheritance that will be the center place of the activity of the new creation and the new heavens and the new earth. With God's throne established there in Jerusalem. But when he speaks of a people, it's more than just Isaac and Jacob and the twelve tribes. It is going to go out and it is going to be a message that will be brought to every tongue and tribe and nation on the earth. And some from every tongue and tribe and nation shall be the descendants of Abraham because their descendancy is not through blood, but through faith. And we're going to get to that. Okay, so we need to move to the next part. So here's a promise. Here's a place. Here's a people. Back to Genesis 12. God, God's promise offered ultimate pleasure. Now this is an important aspect of understanding God's relationship with Abraham. God's promise offered ultimate pleasure. Why would I say that? When the introduction to God's promise comes, God uses a particular word several times. Look in chapter 12 again, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. Mark that. I will bless you and make your name great so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be Blessed. So what is that blessing? The blessing is the blessing of dwelling 
in God's favor on earth and in God's presence in the new heaven and the new earth. The blessing is to dwell in God's favor on earth and in God's presence in the new heaven and the new earth. The greatest source of pleasure in the entire universe is God. Anything you have ever enjoyed, even if it was illicitly enjoyed, is a tiny, micro, little, bitty idea of what God has in store for you in the new heavens and the new earth. God's blessing is His enduring protection. It is His guarantee to never leave or forsake. It is His fulfillment in the death of Christ for your sins, the resurrection of Christ for your justification, the mediation of Christ today in your life, the presence of Christ for all of eternity. God's blessing is the highest attainable pleasure in the universe. It is to bear His favor. It is to have His smile. It is to know His welcome. It is to enjoy His presence. It is to behold His beauty. It is to worship His majesty. What God is doing here is He is saying what I have to offer is better than every, any, all alternatives that will be offered to you. This is important because I think somehow in our understanding of God, we've kind of turned Him into a cosmic killjoy who's kind of out to keep us from having fun. I get that when I talk with people and they say, yeah, that that God thing, it's, it's like a... It's like a bunch of no's. It's a drag. Why can't I just do what I want to do and what I enjoy? God's blessing is that avenue through which He will give to you joy inexpressible. He will give to you glory that you can't even utter with your mouth. In fact, in those two passages in Romans 8 and in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that the glory that is to be revealed to us, in us, in heaven, has no earthly comparison. There is nothing that you could say it's like this or like this. In fact, the Apostle Paul says it's beyond all comparison. And so what God wants to do in a relationship with you through Christ, Christ through the lineage, Christ through Abraham, is He wants to bless Abraham, make Abraham a blessing, and through him, his seed will bless all of the nations of the earth. And every tongue and tribe and nation, someone from every one of those will be able to all of eternity enjoy the pleasures of God. 
This is why we're called to deny ourselves earthly pleasures that are not a part of God's plan for us in order that we may lay hold of heavenly pleasures that are indescribable and are held out to us as a promise. C.S. Lewis in one of his writings talks about this. It's a little pamphlet called The Weight of Glory. And in it he describes a couple of children making mud pies in a slum. And because they've never been out of the slum and no one's ever described it to them, they cannot imagine what a holiday at the seaside would actually be like. And so they become satisfied playing with mud pies when something infinitely greater is offered to them. But because they have not had the revelation of God in their heart and heard it through His Word, they don't want to go beyond what they know and see and feel and taste and touch. And so what God is doing in Abraham is He's saying, I'm going to do something in you and through you that will spread out to all who will believe and they will receive something that is a joy inexpressible. The washing away of their sin and their guilt and their shame. The removal of the wrath of God and penalty and punishment and pain for all of eternity. And the joy of having God's presence forever. And so God promised ultimate pleasure. And that is what the blessing is. The blessing is this. It's God Himself. The thing that God gives us through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the lineage and Jesus is not heaven. It's God. God is the gift of the Gospel. God is offering Himself to you as your reward. Himself to you as your great final destination. Heaven will be nothing without God. In fact, it would be hellish to have streets of gold that enamored our hearts rather than God who loves us as our object of worship. And so, this pleasure is being offered as a gift and it will weave its way through Abraham into Isaac to Christ to us. Okay, so number five. Sort of the fifth component or the fifth uh, theme of this promise. God's promise included a plan to bring the promise to fulfillment. His promise included a plan Now, this plan is what's spoken of in the New Testament. When the apostles are are preaching, they say, by the predetermined plan of God. Talking about a plan that God had from before 
the foundation of the earth, that's carried out even in the fall, it's carried out even in the flood, it's carried out even in the separation of the nations at Babel, it's carried out in Abraham and in Isaac and Jacob and all the way until Mary conceives and Christ is born. And Christ lives sinlessly and He dies sacrificially and He's raised victoriously and He ascends to the right hand of the, God, of, of the Father and sits as mediator for us. God is working out a plan. And that in that plan, He is bringing about our salvation, our forgiveness, our hope. You'll see that, come with me to chapter 15, verse 6. Fifteen six. So shall your descendants be, verse 5, verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now this is going to be the highlight of the book of Galatians, the centerpiece of the teaching of Jesus and what all the New Testament is about. Is that God is going to bring someone, this Messiah, this seed, and in order for us to have a relationship with this seed, we simply have one requisite, and that is faith. So that what God is doing is He's bringing about a salvation freely offered and freely given. Abraham is the first picture of it. He's not the first one to ever receive salvation, but he's the first picture of how this is going to work. God is going to tell you something in the gospel. And if you believe it, he will reckon that belief as righteousness. He will credit it as righteousness. He will save your soul. Now, that's the emphasis that we'll speak on next week. So we're going to leave that for now and go to number six. I know we ought to talk about it now, but we don't have time. So here we go. Number six, God's promise had a premise by which he would fulfill his covenant promises. So this is where it gets really beautiful. Come to chapter 15 and watch how this works out. God has said all this to Abraham. He's spoken to him. He says, OK, I'm making you a promise. I'm giving you a place. I am making of you a people. I'm offering you infinite pleasure in the blessing of God on you, through you, and to all of the people on the earth. And I have a plan that I'm going to bring it about through you and through Isaac and Jacob and all the way. I've got a plan. I'm going to work it out. And then Abraham says what all of us would say. So come to verse 7 of chapter 15. And the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees, Chaldeans to give this land to you to possess it. And he said, oh, Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? This is great. God is making this huge promise, a promise that is impossible. 
It's impossible. His wife is beyond childbearing. He is 99 years old. The book of, the, the, the book of Hebrews says he was, he was as good as dead. When you're 99, I hope nobody comes up to you and says that. You just, you're as good as dead. But that's what the book of Hebrews says, good as dead. He's 99. They're having this conversation. And he says, God, how do I know you're telling me the truth? How do I know this is real? How do I know that I will receive this promise? How do I know? And God does something that was a part of their culture. God is going to make a covenant. So it's moving from a promise, verbal, to a covenant that is illustrated. Now, God is as good as His Word. But what God is going to do is He is going to swear by His own self. Now, I need to take you somewhere for a second. Keep your finger in 15 and go uh, with me to the book of Hebrews for just a moment. And I want you to see what's about to happen. Go to chapter 6 and look in verse 13. This will tie it together. Alright, you there? Alright, here we go. Chapter 6, verse 13, book of Hebrews. For when God made the promise to Abraham... Didn't we just read about that? What all was in the promise? Well, He made a promise. There was a place. There was a people. Alright? There was pleasure, the blessing. Uh, what else was there? A plan. Alright? And so Abraham says, on what grounds... On what premise can I believe this? Now read here. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater. Isn't that how we swear? We swear by somebody greater. I swear to God, that's true. Haven't you heard somebody say that? I'm not saying you should do that, but that's what people do. I swear to God. I swear on my mama's grave. I swear on a stack of Bibles. We're always swearing to something that we believe is greater than us and our word. Well, God had no one greater than Himself. So He says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since He could swear by no one greater, He swore by Himself. Now, how did God swear by Himself? This is very important in understanding the Gospel and the relationship of Abraham's promise with the Gospel itself. He swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise for men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them, an oath is given as a confirmation to end every dispute in the same way. God desiring even more to show the heirs of promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose. He pledged an oath. Where did God pledge an oath? I'm glad you're asking. Back to 15. This is awesome. This is what's being described in Hebrews 6. It's taking place in Genesis 15. And what happens? How do I know? Verse 8. 
that I shall possess it. And the Lord said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old young ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought these to him, and he cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not there where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I also will judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, they shall return here. And the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set, it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Listen to that. Back then, what you would do is you would take those animals, you'd cut them in two, and the two people who were making the covenant together would walk together between them, and basically they would turn around, and here's what they would say. All right. They would say, these animals, ripped in two, cut in two, represent two things. First, they represent the length I will go to to keep my word. If keeping my word costs me my life, I sacrifice my life to keep my word. Second, if you do not keep your word, may this happen to you. And in fact, if you'll read in the book of Jeremiah, and you can look at it later, chapter 34, the Lord actually says He's going to do this to some people because they didn't keep the covenant. Listen what happens. Abram doesn't walk between the animals because it's not his covenant to make. God walks in a picture of an oven, which is the fierceness of his wrath used in the book of Psalm that burns up stubble. It's the fierceness, it's the holiness, it's the oven of his wrath, it's the oven of his holiness. And the other is a flaming torch, it is an illuminating, a light, the light of God, the light of illumination. And they pass through there, so God, symbolically as judge and as illuminator, passes through there and he says this, Abraham, to keep my promise, I'll go this far. How does God keep that promise? Some people say, you know, God can forgive people just because He wants to. That is not true. God cannot forgive people just because He wants to. If God forgave you with no premise of forgiveness, God would be unjust and therefore He couldn't be God. Here's what God was saying on that day. What the book of Hebrews picks up. Is that God was saying, I'm making a covenant with you. And if it costs me my life, I will pay my life to secure these blessings. Now go to Hebrews chapter 2. To forgive you, there must be a premise. 
God cannot just because He wants to forgive you. God must have a premise that protects His justness. While He is justifying sinners in their in or unjustness. How can God do that? Chapter 2, verse 14. Hebrews, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their life. Listen to this. Listen, for assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, since he himself was tempted in that what he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. What's he doing? Well, the writer of the Hebrews says, when God took on skin and died, he fulfilled the promise to Abraham that he would go even to his own death to secure the promises. And so for you to be a child of Abraham, God put on flesh and blood and He died. He paid for your sins. He kept His oath. So because of Jesus' death and His ultimate resurrection, He has offered to you the promise of Abraham fulfilled in the book of the Revelation, that would count you among that unnumbered people, singing praise to God at the end of time, clothed in the righteousness of Christ and celebrating the salvation of God. What God has done is He has sent Jesus to fulfill the promise of Abraham. Would you bow with me? For you to participate in this promise, there must be a moment of saving faith. A moment where you, in the knowledge of your sinfulness, where you in the knowledge of God's wrath toward your sinfulness, where you in the moment of knowing your inability turn from your sin and you place your faith in the One who kept His Word by being sacrificed for our sake on the cross. Where the Son, God Himself, took on flesh and blood so that He might through death break the power of the devil and might free us who have feared death all of our lives. He doesn't give help to angels, but He gives aid to the sons of Abraham. And the Apostle Paul said, and we are the sons of Abraham through faith in Christ Jesus. It is my desire for you to inherit this pleasurable, joyful, irrevocable joy 
that Christ offers you to forgive you of your sins. He is the fulfillment of Abraham's promise. He is the fulfillment of God's plan. And He offers Himself as a free gift to you that you receive by faith. If you are a believer, you should be making ready for that day in Revelation 7 where you are rejoicing. But if you are not, this would be the day to turn from your sin and place your faith in One who took your place, who died for your sins and was raised from the dead. Would you do that today? And in so doing, would you publicly, willingly announce it and pronounce it through confession of your faith and following Him in believer's baptism? I invite you, I invite you today to rejoice. Would you stand as God works in and stirs your heart? Would you come? Tis so sweet.